Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Most of us know how difficult it can be to maintain a healthy diet, but what are some of the decisions we make about what we eat may be beyond our control? Is it possible that foods are addictive like drugs and alcohol? To what extent does the food industry know or care about these vulnerabilities? In his latest book, Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants <clears throat> excuse me, Exploit Our Addictions, Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter Michael Moss sets out to answer those questions. His book is published by Random House, and I'm very pleased it has brought Michael Moss to our show now. Welcome. Thank you, Mr. Lopate. Nice to hear your voice. Um, nice to hear you, too, and uh, I'm pleased to have you here. Uh, in uh, 2014, uh, you had a New York Times best-selling book, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. What led you to want to have another go at the processed food industry? And, you know, you and I talked back then, I, I recall fondly. The, the reason I set out to write this new book is that I think it was almost immediately after we talked, I got an interview from, I think it was some British tabloid TV reporters, you know what they're like. And they were like, so Michael, you end this book on this hopeful note saying that, you know, the knowledge of reading this book will empower people to help them decide what to eat and how much, because ultimately we're the ones making that decisions. But isn't this stuff you're talking about addictive, like drugs? And if that's the case, how can you, where do you come off saying we have any free will in the matter? And I'm like, you know, coughing and hemming and hawing. And I duck that question because I really had no idea. I mean, on the face of it, it seemed absolutely absurd to compare you know, Oreo cookies with with heroin. Um, but but one other thing and we can we can get into it. And, and, the, and we will. <laughs> yeah, no, that and, I, you know, but but just to sort of foreshadow that, I mean, I came full circle from being, you know, skeptical of that whole notion to actually believing that in some ways some of these products are even more problematic, more habit forming, more addictive, if you will, than than some of the harshest drugs. But the the other thing that happened is that none other than Nestle, the largest company in the food company in the world, invited me to come talk to its you know, research and development officials about salt, sugar, fat. They wanted to, they said they were turning a corner and wanted to start doing the right thing by people. And they wanted to hear all the bad things they'd done so they could start doing good things. So I went and talked to them. And I have to say, they really impressed me with their efforts to cut back on salt, sugar, fat. But, and, and other companies followed suit. But if anything, in the last few years, our trouble with food, with their products, has increased, and not just obesity and type two diabetes and other sort of health measures, but just you know, on the other end of the spectrum, just like this feeling that we have to spend way too much attention thinking about what we eat in order to stay in control of it, and that got me thinking that maybe I missed something with salt sugar. Maybe it's maybe there's stuff in these products that isn't on the label or in the sure. ingredients list that somehow we need to be careful of and, and boy is that true your first chapter is where does it begin and it focuses on the brain and you write about nora volko the head of the national institute on drug abuse 
And and she decided to study food. Uh, wasn't she the first to observe that the faster something reaches the brain, the greater the brain's response? Yeah. How, do, yeah. how does and the I speed was, of what we eat, our food, uh, affect our brains? There's a number of researchers, by the, way, by the way, who used to focus on drugs and have switched over looking at food mm. because of the similarities and the, and the even kind of greater health consequence. So one of the things that sort of drug addiction experts learned is that the faster a substance hits the brain, the more apt the brain is to respond to that substance and act compulsively. I love brain scientists who divide our brain into two. One is the go brain, which gets us motivated to do things. And the other is the stop brain, which says, hey, wait a minute, Michael, is this really such a good idea what we're starting to do here? Um, and the speed that a substance hits the brain is, is measured in its ability to kind of trigger the go brain. And there is nothing faster in our lives, or or certainly nothing, well, nothing faster, I'll say it, than, than food and its ability to hit the brain with those feelings of reward and pleasure. And I'll just give you one example. It, it can take as long as 10 seconds for cigarette smokes to hit the reward uh, smoke for, to hit the reward center of the brain, somewhat less for intravenous drugs. Um, if you put a dab of sugar on your tongue, and we know this because they did these experiments, that will send a signal to your brain, which will send a signal back to your finger, and you will be able to push a button recognizing the sweetness in just a little over half a second. Mm -hmm. And when you really look at fast food and fast groceries, everything about it is fast from the manufacturing to the packaging to the to the convenience that allows us to eat it with one hand mindlessly while we're doing something else besides those kind of key aspects of it the salt sugar and fat hitting our brain with incredible speed one of the scientific studies you cite is roy weiss's studies at mcgill university his experiments in the late 60s uh with rats about the reward uh, quality of food. Why are rats ideal subjects? Because uh, a number of experiments, not just by, by Roy Weiss, involve rats. Yeah, actually, they're laboratory mice, <clears throat> a okay. little cuter than rats, perhaps, or white rats, I guess some people call them. Um, so they have a brain that's physically very similar to the human brain. It has it has many, if not all, of sort of the same components. And while you always- Now you're to, talking about politics. <laughs> you always have to be careful <laughs> in drawing too much from animal <laughs> studies. But, you know, Roy was was at a lunch meeting at McGill up in, in Montreal, which is a famous sort of brain uh, research university when a, a, a colleague from MIT came along and said, look, hey, I could do this cool experiment where I can make a perfectly satisfied laboratory rat um, get hungry instantly by inserting this little tiny wire into its brain and putting electricity in. Roy Wise's reaction was, wait a minute, this was back in the 60s. He says, That's absurd. I mean, hunger starts in the stomach, not the yeah. brain. But in fact, the MI student was right. Hunger, as well as addiction, happens in our brain with assistance from the rest of the of the body. And it was and through those experiments, putting the wire in rats, that they could like they would do a little jolt of electricity, 
and, and the rat would go from being completely satisfied to being ravenously hungry. And then they would turn off that little jolt of electricity and the rat would, you know, lie down and go back to just doing its little rat thing. And Weiss also studied the power of dopamine. How did, where does that come into this story? Yes. Uh, also, <clears throat> Kent Berridge, uh, might as well throw that in as well so you can include him, at the University of Michigan, studied the power of dopamine and rat smiles. <laughs> I didn't even know rats smiled or, or so, white mouse, mouse smiles, yeah, whatever. So, yeah, so Roy Wise was the, was the person who discovered that our brain is like this living uh, chemical laboratory with natural chemicals that we produce ourselves that get us to do things or not do things. And he discovered one of the sort of the, the, the actions of dopamine, which is to basically slosh around between the neurons in your brain sending signals. Um, and, and for the most part, signals that were, that were associated with liking things and wanting things. Um, and Kent Berridge came along and said, but hey, wait a minute. When I disable rats from smiling and I give them something sweet because Rats love sugar. Um, we've all read that book, right? Give the mouse a donut and whatever, he'll be your friend for life. Um, they still smile, even without kind of the dopamine. And so Kent was sort of came along and said, hey, I think there's actually other chemicals as well as the dopamine. Um, and for me, that was a really powerful moment because the first thing that the food companies argued to me with is how can you call lunchables addictive they don't have the harsh chemicals that cigarettes alcohol you know narcotics have well they don't need those chemicals because they have other things that generate our own natural chemicals in our brain including dopamine um which are the which is the great sort of motivator for for getting to do things so does the body go through withdrawal if you stop consuming junk food no, so well, well, and maybe we should de might, define the difference between junk food and and fast food, or are they the same? Yeah, well, you know, definitions are pretty loose. People these days are talking about ultra processed food, which is kind of, you know, anything that's kind of so highly processed that you can't really recognize the the base ingredients or where it came from. And the other sort of hallmark of a lot of these products is you don't often have to chew it very much. It's been so engineered and processed, it just kind of melts in your mouth, mouth kind of for the, the high the high fat contact. So the definition of addiction has sort of changed over the years by, you know, at the behest of drug research, because they realized there are some drugs, powerful drugs that, you, that can addict you that won't leave you with withdrawal symptoms when you quit. And so they, they go, wait a minute, maybe we can't have sort of withdrawal as a criteria. Um, and one of the, again, one of the great moments for me in researching this book was when none other than the CEO of Philip Morris, um, back in the year 2000, when Philip Morris was not only the largest tobacco manufacturer in North America, but also the largest manufacturer of processed food. Because they had bought, asked, because they bought, because they had bought General, uh, General. Foods, um, mm -hmm. the old company based up in Terrytown, New York, and then Kraft, and then Nabisco, mm -hmm. the maker of Oreos. 
Um, and he was asked, look, I mean, okay, so what's your definition of addiction? And he said, you know, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. Which again, I think is really important to sort of chew on because not everybody loses control with ultra processed food, junk food, um, convenience food, like other people do, or at all times of their life or at all times of the day. But the same is true of smokers, drinkers, drug users. I had no idea, but there's a good number of people who use heroin casually without any apparent ill effect to them. They can take it or leave it, um, which is really very fascinating. In that sense, you know, junk food, processed food fits right in with that. What is uh, maltodextrin and why does it play such an important role in the manufacture of fast foods? Um, the companies like maltodextrin because it's it's a it's a sugar that for most people doesn't taste sweet. And so they can add it to things to give it some substance. It has body, it has calories, but it doesn't have sweetness. It's kind of like an, an invisible bulking agent, if, if you will. Will it make I, us fat anyway? Well, fat. So here's the thing. One of the ways that the companies are tapping our most basic instincts is that we have evolved to be fat creatures. And, and this is what I mean, sort of everything about our being in through natural selection was geared toward not just eating, but eating more and overeating because and putting on body fat, because that was a really good thing. Body fat enabled us to have growing brains, to have more babies, to get through hard times. And it's it's only in the last 50 years that that equation has turned on its head and become problematic for us because the food industry has made overeating an everyday thing. And one of the ways they do that is to pack their products densely with calories, knowing that when we eat something with calories, the brain gets excited and wants more and more of it. And I'll give you going back to maltodextrin. You could take two glasses of water, pour some maltodextrin powder in one of the glasses, mix it up and give it to somebody. They won't taste the maltodextrin. But if you do that over several times and ask them which glass they prefer, they will always almost prefer the maltodextrin because they're liking the calories in that, even though they're not tasting the calories. My guest on London Low Pit at Large today here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Michael Moss, whose latest book is Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. It's published by Random House. How many Americans die each year from obesity? Because uh, isn't that what you're talking about leads to? Yeah, I, I apologize. I've lost track of that number. It's it's huge, as is kind of the financial consequence of diabetes. Is um, it getting worse? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, the last time I checked, the official numbers on adult Americans is that 42% of Americans are clinically obese, meaning that, you know, the average five foot nine 
man is going to have something like 30 or 40 extra pounds on their body. Um, on top of that, there's another group of people who are overweight, um, yeah. and that's about a third of Americans. And yeah, that's, you know, that's the thing. When I went to Nestle and they said, oh, we're cutting back on salt, sugar, fat, you know, we're going to solve this problem. It didn't solve the problem. We're still attracted to these products um, in these very deep ways that's causing us to overeat. You wrote in the prologue of your book about Jaslyn Bradley, who as a little girl growing up in Brooklyn, developed, as she put it, an affair with food, specifically with food from McDonald's. She was the second of 10 kids, a very large family in, in, in Brooklyn, who developed really at about the age of six um, a relationship with McDonald's that I, I, I think a lot of people can relate to. Um, but didn't her didn't her parents kid. discourage it? <laughs> yeah, well, to some extent, but you know that was seen as a treat in her mm. family. By and large, her mom cooked meals from scratch. Jasmine was a bit of a picky eater, though, and as soon as she was able to, and also. It was a treat because when they would go visit relatives, they would walk by the McDonald's just a block and a half from their house and stop in for a treat. But that's one of the things about kind of eating habits, and especially when you're young, is that those eating habits and the memories that we retain from eating and food at a young age are some of the most powerful memories we create in our entire life and they'll last a whole lifetime. And so over time, Jaslyn sort of going back to McDonald's first with her family and then on her own was deepening those memory channels for um, for McDonald's that were really hard to deal with by the time she was a, a teenager and having other sort of emotional draws to to eat overeating that were causing trouble for her. And don't uh, fast food companies like McDonald's actually play upon those things uh, and, and young people, they, and they uh, put together special meals for kids. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in Salt Sugar yeah. Fat, I wrote about how Coca-Cola sort of pioneered the marketing effort to get a Coke in the hands of a kid in you know every ballpark in the country, knowing that when that kid had that Coca-Cola with his mom and dad at that incredible joyous moment, that memory would be embedded in them. So the industry fiercely pursues the power of memory through advertising, marketing um, to kids and adults. And, th you know, these memories come back and get us at the least, you know, when we're least expecting. People were really optimistic about the pandemic in one sense, which is, we thought here's a chance when maybe we can regain control of our eating habits. At least we're getting away from the vending machine at work. But kind of the complete opposite happened for a lot of people. And the, the food companies were rejoicing because sales of cookies and crackers and stuff that people hadn't eaten were soaring through the through the first part of the pandemic. And it, and it continued because we were going into the grocery store and pulling stuff off the shelf that we hadn't had since we were kids, mm -hmm. based on the strength of the memory of having that product and you know the emotional stress that we were under for during the during the pandemic. 
Who's John Badzoff, and what role did he play in Jasmine Bradley's experience with junk food? Ah, he was one of the lawyers who beat Big Tobacco and resulted in the um, the huge monetary settlement when state's attorney general sued tobacco to recover the costs, healthcare costs associated with, with smoking. Jaslyn's attorney was somebody else who was less kind of versed in this area of food, not to mention tobacco. And he had, he had filed an initial complaint that kind of ticked off a number of things that he was accusing McDonald's is. But John Brazoff came along, found out about it, and they had a conversation. And John said to him, look, one of the things you need to do here, A, is get somebody very sort of sympathetic like Jaslyn. Um, the first plaintiff in that famous case was an older man who one could argue had more personal responsibility or chance for personal responsibility than, than Jaslyn. But the other thing that came from those tobacco cases was this notion of addiction. And so Jasmine's attorney added um, a clause, a claim of addiction in the, in the case, knowing that our whole kind of attitude and legal interaction with big tobacco turned when we began realizing that tobacco was in fact, because it wasn't very long ago that your average person didn't think smoking was addictive. Right. Um, for the same reasons we kind of talked about this. Look, some people take it or leave it. I mean, how can you call that addictive then? Until you try to well, quit, as I discovered many <laughs> years know, ago. And, yeah, right, right, right. And you can quit and some people can quit. It's it took me a year to quit. You know, I interviewed the former general counsel of Philip Morris, Steve Parrish, who said, you know, they made two products and many more, but two. two he, he was addicted to Oreo cigarettes. cookies, too, wasn't he? <laughs> he could smoke one cigarette a day at like business meetings, put the pack away and never think about it again until the next day. But he said he couldn't go near a bag of Oreo cookies <laughs> because for fear that he'd open it up and like, eat the eat the whole thing. And so. Philip Morris and the whole tobacco industry, having conceded finally that, yes, smoking is addictive, was kind of a huge thing um, for Jaslyn's case because it sort of meant that, well, wait a minute, maybe there is a question of free will. Maybe, maybe Jaslyn and even adults don't have as much personal responsibility in these things. And in fact, that's what the judge said. He said, look, I mean, this is really interesting because this could get over that hurdle of, hey, wait a minute, you knew McDonald's food was bad, right? Well, sure. just knowing, um, I should say bad, eating it every day in the way that, that, that some people do, because um, it's the amount, certainly, that's that's problematic. Um, but But that's the thing is that, you know, when you're talking about a substance that has these addictive qualities to it, merely knowing that it might be bad for you isn't enough to sort of charge up the stop part of your brain to put the brakes on actions that your go brain is going full speed on. How do our brains process memories of food? And what's the significance of sugar when it comes to memory and arousing the brain? Sugar is still a pretty powerful force for, uh, for a lot of people. I mean, I have been to meetings of groups of people they're like aa except they are <laughs> addicted to food and they will they will get up and say hi i'm michael i'm a food addict um 
Sugar, by and large, is the most problematic single ingredient out there. I think also just because of the speed that it hits the brain and 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 who knows, maybe going back to evolutionary times, sugar was a great thing to stumble across. You didn't have a lot of it out there on the in the Great Rift Valley of, of, of Africa, but um, the where the cradle of mankind was. But um, and and there's certainly other there's certainly other things like that that can hit the brain. And so the thing about memory is that the 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 kind of the degree of the stimulus, whether it's taste, flavor, association with other memories, repetitiveness, all of those things deepen the memory channels in our brain. One scientist likened it to me to like stream beds in the desert that, you know, they're dry most of the year, but every now and then a torrential flood comes along and deepens the the stream bread and bread. And so that the next time it rains, that water is more apt to be channeled through that brain and so through that through that stream bed. And so the same thing happens in our brains, kind of the, the deeper we carve these memory channels, the more apt we are to send ourselves down that memory when we see a cue. So you're standing here smelling vanilla, depending on kind of what your past experience is with vanilla, you're going to have images of certain foods that you associate with that with with that vanilla when you were writing salt sugar fat your your previous book the bestseller you relied on sources within the processed food industry to reveal things to you their dirty laundry was that a problem when you were researching this book <laughs> they they must have recognized your name and, <laughs> and saw you coming yeah but you know you have i mean I was surprised at how many, well, hey, how many, how many of these insiders don't eat their own products because they know better. But, <laughs> but really, how many of them have come to have misgivings about their, about their life work? So I was able to go back to some of those same people and sort of ask them about this, um, this kind of new perspective of looking at their products, which is kind of moving, you know, beyond just the individual ingredients and looking at, at how they're 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 hitting our, our instincts, our emotions, and so cleverer ways. Um, you know, I had really great luck in talking to people who work with the food industry. I managed to get inside the chemical laboratories in New Jersey called flavor houses that mix and match the chemicals, some natural, some artificial for the processed food industry. And I I went in there thinking that, you know, that was kind of their main claim to fame was coming up with a, you know, a fake pumpkin pie spice flavor. And indeed, they do that. Um, but the real thing that they do for the food companies, the most the most powerful thing from the food company perspective is that they work at reducing the cost of food. So they're they're mixing and matching chemicals to get the least cost formulation, because one of the things we're addicted to, one of the one of the things we're naturally drawn toward is food that's inexpensive, um, inexpensive in the sense of how much energy we have to um, expend to get that food, which kind of makes perfect sense, right? When we lived in hunter-gatherer societies, why would you go out and like run down an impala for dinner when you could grab an aardvark who couldn't get away from you and have just as much protein? And so that that natural, we go crazy for cheap food. Um, and look, I mean. I don't want to make light of this. So many of us are hurting financially that we're 
we're looking at the price of food, you know, from a, from a, from a, from a dire standpoint of only having so much money to feed the family. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to lose sight for that, but there are, there are these, these big box grocery stores that, that are less expensive than Walmart out there now, where you see luxury cars parked in the parking lot because people just love saving 10 cents on a box of Pop-Tarts. It gets the brain really excited. And so the industry has been very clever in all the ways, the industry and all its consultants, very clever in all the ways that they reduce the cost of food to keep it exciting to us. And the grocery chains are complicit when it comes to getting consumers hooked on processed foods. Yeah, I mean, they work with the manufacturers to decide where food is placed in the grocery store. You know, when you walk in, they have it figured out where your attention is going to go. And so the product placement in the aisles is, you know, all too often aimed toward getting those kind of most seductive, alluring, problematic items right at eye level where you're more apt to to greet them. The checkout lines are areas where we're vulnerable to making compulsive, impulsive decisions. And so they'll put things there like coolers of soda to, to grab our attention. I mean, they're, look, all these, all these guys are companies, right? They're, they're companies trying to sell things. Doing what all companies want to do, which is make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. In his 2019 book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts right now, Jaron Lanier reported that many uh, of the uh, tech firm CEOs and creators of social media applications don't allow their children access to the platforms that they've developed. Do the food scientists and other industry leaders allow their children to eat the processed foods that they develop? Well, you know, I, I, I got to know and really liked as a person the inventor of Lunchables. Mm -hmm. um, and his he, well, he didn't eat Lunchables because he, he was an older gentleman, but his own family was kind of split on that. As I recall, he had two sons and a daughter and the sons were kind of okay with it, but the daughter did not give her own kids Lunchables, which was kind of was a little, you know, kind of a thing in the family. I mean, grandpa invited Lunchables, why can't I have them? And they just didn't sort of fit into the, the nutrition profile that the mom was wanting those. The, the reason though, that these insiders don't eat their products is twofold. One, they don't have to. These products are made and there's a big class division here. They're made for people who feel compelled to eat convenience foods for, for whatever reason. And two, they know better. They know how seductive the products can be. And so with that combination of knowledge and being able to do healthier things like cook from scratch and pay attention to the to, to what they're doing, the executives in these companies by and large have evaded, you know, the trouble that they've caused for the rest of us. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Michael Moss, uh, I'd like to take a moment 
to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or calling 516-620-3602 to help keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Again, that number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am pleased to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions by my guest, Michael Moss. But no matter what level you show your support for this show and this historic station, it all helps. It's, it's a, uh, the important thing is to take that step to keep Leonard Lopez at Large coming to you and your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to WBAI.org on the web. And you'll also be taking a stand by keeping 100% independent, listener-funded community radio alive in New York. At BAI, we don't take funding grants or corporate underwriting of any kind. We, uh, there, are, there are no ads. No one tells us what kind of shows that we can do or can do. But that's what truly independent media means, only possible by your, through your support. So, but please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of London Lopez at Large. And from all of us to all of you, thank you so much. Uh, let's get back to my guest, Michael Moss, whose latest book is Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. It's from Random House. Um, what is the history of all of this? Uh, for example, um, uh, what is the historical context for the rise of the processed food industry? What changes were made within the food industry as women entered the workforce at, at greater numbers? Right. So there were a couple of like, key milestones in, in processed food. One is the sort of famous Kellogg brothers story where um, the senior Kellogg boy was a physician and despised sugar. He had a health spa out in Battle Creek, Michigan. Um, where ultimately Kellogg's became headquartered. Um, and he would feed people like a granola kind of cereal without any sugar in it at, at all. And his younger brother, Will, sort of came along. He was more the bookkeeper of the operation, of the spa operation. And, and when the older brother was traveling, one day Will put some sugar in that granola mm -hmm. and the clientele went bonkers over <laughs> it. And, the two ended up in court and there was a split and ultimately Will became the Kellogg's company. So that was that was maybe one of the, that was a great milestone when the industry realized that it could tweak the formulas of these products in some really interesting ways. The second big one you mentioned, which is after World War II, more and more women began working outside of the home. Uh, Black women had already been working outside of the home to a large extent. So this is maybe more among white women. But what that did was sort of change the dynamic of the 7 p.m. dinner call when suddenly 
man and woman were coming home, needing to put a meal on the table uh, for the family and not having, you know, three hours to do it. And the processed food industry saw this as an opportunity to sell the idea of convenience. And in fact, they coined the word, uh, the term convenience foods, um, to fill that need that people were having because they had less time to stay home and, and cook. And then I think the third milestone, this was in the 1960s when an advertising copy editor on Madison Avenue was asked to come up with a jingle for slogan for Frito-Lays a potato chip. And I think it took him about three seconds, but he's the one who invented the term, bet you can't eat okay. just one. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of an open acknowledgement that these formulations and the allure of convenience were so powerful that many of us would have trouble eating just one or resisting them. I think those are like three really key milestones. What about my microwave, which I love? Didn't that also change how we eat? Yeah, it sped up. So the microwave sort of enabled the TV dinner to blossom and enabled the frozen food aisle of the grocery store, which in, in, in so many ways is one of the more treacherous parts of the grocery store because it it began filling up with fast foods um, that had all the hallmarks of, of you know, the food that, that, that Mr. Schlosser wrote about in Fast Food Nation some years ago. Um, sort of introducing fast food into the grocery store where we really weren't prepared for that kind of change in our products. We were still, we would still walk in the grocery store fairly thinking that we would come out of there with food that's by and large really good for us along with sort of some treats but the the combination of the microwave enabling us to to increase our dependence on frozen foods entrees um was big as well i think what happened in your life when you got a microwave did you use it just to warm up coffee yeah, to warm up coffee, to uh, defrost frozen food, and then I might cook it after that. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't use it as uh, a kind of a basic source of heat. But sure, I find it as one of uh, a convenience. Uh, you you cite Heinz as an example of how frozen foods were used to turn quote turn out kitchens into drive-in restaurants. Heinz <laughs> Heinz acquired so you know we know them for ketchup. They were they were big on high fructose corn syrup actually as a, as an additive to to ketchup. But they also acquired the I think it was called the Orida company. They they made um, potatoes. They grew potatoes in Idaho and made French fries. And came up with lots of different French fries and and with Heinz they kind of perfected the frozen fries in a bag that you could turn into luscious French fries, you know, in your own kitchen without having to get in your car and go to the drive-in. So that was one of their, one of their slogans was, you know, you, you can have your drive-in right here in your kitchen. as being don't a positive they, thing. Don't they have, sometimes have it uh, both ways? For example, Heinz, along with other companies that make market and sell foods that make us fat, then turn around and sell us diet products that are aimed at, at making us thin. 
I have to say that that was one of the more stunning aspects of the research that I that I did for this book. And let, you know, let's go back to drugs again too. So, you know, what's the what's the more common response to to struggling with a drug addiction? It's to go cold turkey, abstention. It's to like do whatever you can, you know, lock yourself in a room to avoid having any contact with that drug. Well, one of the ways that food is more problematic than drugs, Nora Volkow pointed out to me at the, at the NIH, is that you can't get away from food. You can't just stop eating. You will die of starvation. Food is everywhere. The temptation is everywhere. And so <clears throat> it's much more difficult to deal with that. But but dieting is kind of a form of abstention that we glommed onto kind of in our desperation to deal with overeating caused by associated with these with these with these products. Um, and I was shocked to learn that some of our most favorite dieting methods were purchased, acquired by none other, some of the largest processed food companies. So Heinz, which is now called Heinz Craft, um, acquired Weight Watchers, <laughs> the Weight Watchers program. Um, more, more recently, a group called Rourke Capital, which has, a, which has a bunch of sort of fast food brands in its pocket, acquired the Atkins diet. Um, somebody, I forget who now, began selling the South Beach diet. Uh, Nestle came up with Slim Fast, I think it was, or maybe that was you know, but there's, you know, there's like six or seven big things, but that wasn't the least of it. They went into the grocery store and began making diet versions of their regular pockets. And so, I'm sorry, their regular foods. And, sure. and so you would see things like Hot Pockets, where the Hot Pockets would be there on the shelf and next year it would be the lean pocket yeah, low, low sodium looked, hot pocket <laughs> well when you looked well some of it was low sodium most of it was low calorie low fat and when you looked at the ingredients though there always wasn't that much difference between the two but they were playing to this attempt on our part to regain control over our eating habits that i found to be startling in the sense that yeah they're they're making us fat on one hand and then selling us products to get a slim on the other hand and those slimming products and those slimming programs look i don't i don't i don't want to dump on anybody's dieting you know method because because some things work for some people but by and large it's incredibly difficult to lose weight once you've once you've gained it didn't Kellogg serve you a special snack when you visited their company? Well, at one point, I went to Kellogg's talking about salt because salt had become, you know, a public enemy number one, if you will. This was back a, a, a few years ago. People were concerned about how much salt we were getting. And I, I said to a few of the companies, like, what's up with all the salt you're using? Can't you just like cut back? And Kellogg's invited me in not just to talk about the power of salt from their perspective, but to make for me special versions of their products that turned out didn't have any salt in them at all. And so we sat down and we started with the Cheez-Its, which, which, and I see your brain lighting up at just mentioning that word. I can tell you're a fan, but uh, no, I certainly not really, but I've had it. Oh, <laughs> well, sorry, but I could eat Cheez-Its all day long, right? But 
these stuck to the roof of our mouth. We couldn't even swallow them because salt adds texture and solubility. So, so is it possible? Function. So is it possible to create a mass-produced delicious snack that isn't full of salt, sugar, and uh, fat, especially trans fats? Well, you're getting to the to the real question here. Looking forward is. You know, to what extent can this industry play a meaningful role going forward? Can it make products that are both kind of satisfying to us and exciting and also still good for us? And I don't really know the answer to that question. I think it depends on the person. If I mean, one thing I do know, and this comes from drug uh, addiction experts too, is if you're intent on changing bad eating habits, you can't do that overnight, especially if those are bad eating habits developed over a lifetime. It's going to take you time to change your attraction. Well, let me put it this way, to change what you value in food, because that's certainly one way to go after it. But one of my favorite scientists said to me one day, he said, look, look Michael, because I was pushing him to say, so which is like more powerful, sugar or salt or fat? And he goes, you know, Michael, I actually believe that um, we like what we eat more than we eat what we like, meaning the memory from habit and repetition can, you know, can win out at the end of the day. So maybe you can, you know, coach yourself and train yourself to like Cheez-Its without any salt at all. <laughs> but that takes time and, and the time that kind of like so few of us have to really try to change their eating habits. Retrain our brains. I'll get to that in a second. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org is Pulitzer Prize winning author uh, Michael Moss. His, his latest book is called Hooked Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. It's published by Random House. So, what does it take to change eating habits or retrain the brain? If you stop eating sugar and and then have an Oreo cookie, uh, what are the chances that you'll have a relapse? Oh, I met a man named Don in Ottawa, Canada, who, through some great fortune, managed to go from 360 pounds to 180 in 13 months. Credible willpower. He didn't have kids as a distraction. He had a, he had a nice, secure job, and he could focus all his energy on losing that weight, and he did. But it was the moment when he lost all that weight that the real nightmare began in his life, because his entire body began fighting back against him and encouraging him to fall off the wagon. He would have to put locks on his cabinets to slow himself down. If in fact he had any junky food in the house, which he couldn't have, he would get on buses and go from one city to another city just to avoid, completely avoid any contact um, with food that might trigger him into a relapse. And it's been, it's been five or six years since he's, he's, and he's sticking to that lower weight, but it's a battle every day. And for him, nothing but complete abstention from those trigger foods. He does not eat sugar. He avoids, you know, most of the grocery store and shopping and making his own food. So that's kind of the extreme end. And you know, the other spectrum of our trouble with food is just, you know, people who just feel like, you know, they have to exert too much energy to, to be in control of their food. And, and or maybe they're just kind of missing the 
the love and the ritual of sitting down with, you know, with a meal with their family, you know, that they don't do anymore because they fell so hard for convenience food, they probably will have an easier time in terms of changing their habits. And I think there's a few ingredients. One, it's, it's knowing how these foods act upon you and then having the resources and the wherewithal to find alternative foods that are better for you. It's that can be expensive. And that's one of the huge inequities out here is, is you walk in the grocery store, you can pay as much for a basket of blueberries as you can for a two pound, four cheese, three right. meat frozen pizza that's going to feed the whole family. So which are you going to choose? Especially if you're a lower income well, I, that's uh, and that's may not have the time, money huge, or access to healthy foods. Uh, but huge getting social class. The term free will is in your book subtitle. How do you answer critics who argue that that being overweight is actually a choice and that personal responsibility plays a large role in the story? You know, I think a lot of that goes to the physiology of addiction and our own kind of physiology. And again, going back to these basic instincts that I mentioned that we have, I had no idea that body fat is a living, thinking diabolical organ in our body. If you have more body fat than you want, and you're trying to lose that, it will do everything it can to block you as a self-preservation mode. So it will send signals to the brain telling you you're hungry when you're not hungry. It will slow down your metabolism so you'll have you'll burn you know less energy than you otherwise would if you're driving down so this is what one of my favorite scientists discovered too and i went into his brain scanner to get a feel for how he did these experiments he was the first person to follow people over time and as some of those people began to put on weight he was able to show that their sensitivity the the excitement that they got when they saw advertising or tasted um, mm. some of their trigger foods increased as they gained weight. And so weight gain in itself became a self-defeating proposition. And I would argue negates free will. This is not about willpower for these people. This is about sort of our physiology, our basic instincts work which were all really great things until 50 years ago when the, the industry changed the nature of our food. Is there the political will needed to pass legislation to better regulate the food industry and uh, to make our food healthier? Oh, I mean, we've, yes. had, we've had people like Michelle Obama trying to bring attention to the importance yeah. of healthy eating and exercise. And, uh, and Melania Trump was definitely a, a thin person, but... Uh, that doesn't seem to have had much of an impact. Do we have to actually pass laws? And by the way, thinness does not necessarily mean being Very healthy well. from a from a food from a food perspective. But um, so, I you know, I get from experts really mixed signals on whether anybody should count on the government to step in here and do anything meaningful. They, you know, we do see these things called sugar taxes pop up here and there where the government is putting a little bit of tax money in there because, you know, this kind of goes back to our, our, our love of things that are cheap. Turns out just putting a few pennies tax on a, on a soda will cause some people to buy less of that, which is just sort of a very cool thing. It's like nudge, nudge marketing. But in terms of, you know, an administration, 
that's able to turn, say, like the focus that, that, that Michelle Obama put on in, in creating this national conversation about food into real live policies that would force the industry to change its ways. I don't know if anybody's expecting that to happen anytime soon. And it's, and I don't know that anybody feels we can wait for that happen because what we eat has never mattered more. I've run out of time, but I am curious about whether researching this book changed how you shop, cook and eat. You know, I had already been looking for ways to turn the tables on the food companies and and, you know, use convenience for ourselves. And so, you know, I stopped buying spaghetti sauce in a jar and started making it myself. And it's less expensive and takes more time and it wows my brain even more. And I don't have to dump a bunch of sugar into it. So, um, you know, we've tried to cut back on soda in our house and we've switched to plain seltzer, which turns out to be really exciting to the brand yeah. and even my 16 year old i only drink seltzer yeah uh, we've uh, pretty much out of time but my great thanks to michael moss whose latest book is hooked food free will and how the food giants exploit our addictions published by random house what a pleasure thank you so much great talking to you thanks for having me and that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Todd McGovern for preparing today's interview. If you've just discovered this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that you might find your podcasts. And there are links to all of our past shows at our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com. You can also... If you want to write to me, reach me by email at leonardlopate at wbai.org. But before I sign off, I'd like to ask you just one last time to, to please step up and support Leonard Lopate at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. If you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you on the show, please go right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help make sure that we can keep the show coming to you uh, on this, the last uh, New York radio station that is sponsored completely by the generosity of our listeners. Uh, the best way to support BAI without help having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more a month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do. And as I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, Hooked Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions by my guest, Michael Moss. But please be sure to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And big thanks to all of you who have kept us alive through your generosity. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Kate Taverna and Carol Van Strum will discuss their eye-opening new documentary, The People vs. Agent Orange. We'll see you then. <laughs>